Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shubhi Glani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm really happy to be joined by Dr. Amy Compton-Phillips, who's the Executive Vice President and Chief Clinical Officer at Providence Health. Providence is one of the nation's largest healthcare systems with 51 hospitals, more than 1,000 clinics in over seven states. In that role, she oversees the clinical care provided by more than 120,000 caregivers. She was also involved in treating some of the first patients with COVID-19 in the U.S. and is a medical analyst for CNN, so you may see her on that channel. So, Amy, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks so much for having me, Shiv. I'm delighted to be here. You wear quite a few hats, and I guess the, the first hat that we're curious about is how you actually decided to pursue a career in, in healthcare. Yeah, you know, I have a really super boring story because I never wanted to do anything other than be a doctor. And in fact, from the time I was kindergarten on, I always said I was going to go to medical school. There was a brief period of time, maybe in seventh grade, that I thought maybe I'd be a vet instead until I realized they had to put dogs to sleep. And I was like, I'm not strong enough for that. So I went into medicine and kind of straight through on a straight and narrow path. And, and how did you know that you wanted to go from being a full-time practicing clinician to then you're now your chief clinical officer at a major healthcare system? How was that shift to administrative and leadership? It happened slowly, insidiously over time. So I went straight from residency to work for Kaiser Permanente. And Kaiser Permanente, I was there for 23 years and absolutely love Kaiser Permanente. And one of the things that is true is that if you're mouthy and you have opinions there, they say, hey, maybe you should uh, be in leadership. You have an opinion, we'll do something about it. And so Kaiser invested significantly in me to help grow my capacity to not only practice medicine, but help lead in medical leadership. And so over time, I went from being a frontline clinician as a full-time doctor to being a full-time administrator by the time I left as chief quality officer for the organization. Amazing. And, and what, what are some of the you know, proudest accomplishments you have in both as chief quality officer at Kaiser and then now at Providence as chief clinical officer? Well, the accomplishments is really trying to think through how we navigate in a country where care is not universally accessible, where it is overpriced for many and inequitably distributed around the country. And so I'd say kind of my personal mission is to make great health and great care affordable and available for everyone in the U.S. And so kind of my, my career trajectories and the things that I'm most proud of are really trying to live that mission. So with Kaiser Permanente, it was about how do we make care ever better? How do we drive up the quality of care? How do we make not only care, but health more accessible. And so worked diligently around our program to, to support the mission of that organization, which is very much focused on the same thing. While Kaiser Permanente had kind of figured out that route, when I came over to Providence, it was how do we work with the 97% of America who don't have Kaiser Permanente insurance to be able to provide that same thing? How do we actually make great health and great care affordable and available? And have been working on both legs of that, the great health and the affordability side. And it's doing things like making sure we have an understanding of where is care great and where is it not and what can we do to improve it? And where is care overly expensive without actually adding value and what can we do to improve that? And so really setting up a system to help us know and you know have a mirror in front of us so we know what we can work on to continuously improve. 
Yeah, it's pretty remarkable to see the the way healthcare shifted even in the past few years. I was in medical school at Johns Hopkins, and even during those few years, Hopkins was starting to consolidate and bring on you know a pediatric hospital in Tampa Bay, Florida, several other hospitals in the Mid-Atlantic region. Providence has obviously been one of the, the largest players in the space and certainly the biggest provider in the Northwest and the U.S. I'd love to hear, during your time at Providence, how is that kind of consolidation and adding more clinics, more caregivers to the network? How has that played out, both for the experience for your caregivers, the 120,000 caregivers under your purview, as well as for the patients? Well, you know, the really important thing is that we think big. In fact, kind of our vision statement for the organization is health for a better world. Like, how do we contribute to health for a better world? But we have to act small. And our promise is that for patients, we'll know them, care for them, and ease their way. And I think it would be incredibly expensive for the country, for every single hospital, every single medical office, every single urgent care to figure that out by themselves. And so how do we, in the thinking big part, how do we actually develop seamless tools that allow us to transform care so that at the individual office level for every doctor and patient, for every nurse, they actually have seamless and easy tools to be able to do their job, right? And so that's what Providence is trying to do is to make that kind of seamlessly integrated tools available for all so that it's easier to do your job locally in a way and, and so kind of the way we think about it is we exist at the intersection of innovation and compassion, that we have to be able to provide innovative tools at scale across our entire footprint, which means not everybody inventing it independently, but rather deploying great interventions across our entire footprint while we enable that compassionate care that happens one-to-one -one individually. So it's the goal. I like that. I've never heard that combination of intersection of innovation and compassion. You know, we've had a previous guest from Providence, Cyril Phillip at Providence Ventures, who talked about some of the, the exciting things you all are working on and the fact that the large health system has a whole team dedicated to identifying innovations that can, you know, may hopefully free up the doctor or any caregiver to provide more one-on-one -on -one compassionate care. So it's definitely been a very interesting, I think it's one of few health systems that seem to be super innovative in that way. Are there specific innovations that you're know, during your time at Providence that you're also kind of excited about? I've heard a bit about telemedicine. We've obviously met that moment with COVID and we're going to go into COVID in just a little bit, but I'd love to hear from your perspective as a, as a clinician turned hospital leader, what are some of those innovations that you think have really improved the clinician patient relationship? You know, I think one of the, the big things is our use of data, that we are big believers in having data-driven care. And so we've been migrating our data assets to the cloud and been able to build tools on the cloud. And we think more data is better and that we can actually use those tools to embed back into patient care. So like simple things like care gaps. And a lot of people now can identify care gaps. And so if you have a patient who is coming in for their sprained knee and you realize that they're overdue for their mammogram, and oh, by the way, that cholesterol is higher, and, and that gets served up to the clinician in front of them, right? So that is, that's one way for patients. And oh, by the way, we're also building safety net tools that the thyroid test was done a month ago, and it's not been followed up on. And oh, by the way, doc, bing, 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 in your overcrowded inbox, here's something that was abnormal that is still outstanding. Right. So, so we can use data for these very discrete things, but we're also using data for some things that are really cutting edge. Like I said, we have been 
thinking a lot about value-driven care and not necessarily about from the, what we talk about as value-driven care in contracting, but to actually drive care delivery. And so to understand if we are providing better outcomes at more affordable cost, we actually have set up a value-oriented architecture that looks at what are our outcomes and what are our costs. Part of those outcomes are patient-reported outcomes. So in order to like understand if we're making patients' lives better by treating them, we have to actually ask, which means we need to collect PROs. So we've set up a whole PRO infrastructure to be able to gather PROs and then feed that back to the doctors and the patients that they treat to use in shared decision-making. So when you start thinking about what is the value that data can unlock, we've been making huge bets. I think there's there's a lot still to be done, but we've already come a huge way. That's fascinating. I mean, PROs is, is particularly resonates. One of our other guests on Raise Line was Mel Hall, who uh, ran Prescani. And one of the most interesting things he told us on, on this interview was that when he started, about 10% or less of healthcare CEOs were compensated in part based on patient satisfaction and outcome metrics like that. But then by the time they left Prescani and scaled from 50 hospitals and health systems that were leveraging their tool to you know a couple thousand, over 90% of health system leaders, part of their compensation was driven based on patient voices, patient satisfaction. So that sounds like something you guys are, are doing at Providence too. We are, and I'd love to just tease apart that a little bit because we we also care a lot about patient satisfaction. And patient satisfaction is asking a patient, how were we? A patient-reported outcome is asking, how are you? And so patient-reported outcomes, you know, people don't get their knee replaced because they, they want to stay in the hospital and tell us how they were treated, right? They get their knee replaced because they want to be able to walk up and down steps and play golf again. And so asking a patient-reported outcome is saying, how are you doing? How are you getting around again? Are you able to do your activities of daily living? Are you able to enjoy your life again? And those kinds of measures are still on this, I would say probably 5% of organizations are collecting patient-reported outcomes. But I think in the future, they will be the sine qua non of a highly effective care because that's really what matters. We measure patient satisfaction because we can. We're measuring PROs because we should. Hmm. Thanks for clarifying that distinction, you know, because, I mean, we know HCAP scores and Prescani scores. There's some tension in the clinical community based on those, especially in certain specialties like psychiatry. I remember one of my professors at Hopkins is a psychiatrist, and he was saying, look, the patient oftentimes is not satisfied when the psychiatrist says, no, like, you've got to take this medicine or you've got to quit, you know, quit taking heroin or things like that, right? right. And like, satisfaction is not the right outcome, but PROs would be, right? Are they actually improved? And sounds like the, the imp- infrastructure you are putting in place for PROs will be very important for the bundled payment models. Uh, one of our guests coming up is Vivian Lee. I'm sure you know, she ran University of Utah. She's a PRO fan as well, by the way. Great. That's definitely something I think our audience, as they go into the clinical setting, should be paying attention to is how organizations like Providence are implementing PROs and how that can become more ubiquitous the same way patient sat became more ubiquitous. Yeah, I think it's critical. So for this next question, let's go in a time machine for about seven months ago, right when the first cases of COVID were starting to be diagnosed. I would love to hear how Providence and you in particular adjusted to COVID and what are some of the lessons you've learned over the past seven months that may be useful looking forward to the next seven months as we enter this even more dangerous time uh, with COVID and influenza? Great question. So you very likely know we had the first patient with COVID in the U.S., which was actually really good for us because there's a couple things. First of all, that it gave us a little bit of a head start. 
that we knew it was here, it was real, and we had to immediately activate our system to be able to respond. And so I'd say phase one is all about how do you respond. And so it got us thinking about how are we going to triage, test, and treat patients that are influxing with a new disease. And that got us thinking about, all right, well, what do we do today that's different than 1918? Well, today, somebody gets a cough and shortness of breath, they go on to Google. And so how do we answer the question, do I have COVID, if somebody Googles on that? And so we started working very closely with our digital innovation group and with Microsoft and built a chatbot so that we could come up with answers so that people didn't have to call up phone lines that we were just imagining would be overwhelmed. And, and so we ended up building this chatbot with Microsoft. We said, hey, you know, we want the world to use this. It's not, for, it's not for us. And so they actually turned it over to the CDC. And now many millions of patients have been using that chatbot to be able to answer the question, do I have COVID? We also had that transferred directly that, you know, that with the branching logic in the chatbot, one of the answers could be go immediately to a telehealth consultation. So an express care virtual consultation in our lingo. And so that was how we went from in 2019, we did 70,000 telehealth visits in Providence. In 2020, we were doing 70,000 a week in by April. So we scaled up instantly in our telehealth capacity and still have that. The other thing that we stood up was, you know, the capacity to triage patients through drive-through testing, which everybody has now, but when we started up, the only other people that we'd heard about doing it were in South Korea. So we were, our triage test and treat patients was, was very rapidly scaled in addition to the ability for us to move people, products, and places. And so we, we put together a pandemic playbook. We had our supply chain escalated at the worst of the worst in the spring when we were running out of masks. We had a colleague go over to Joanne's Fabric and bring home every bit of medical sheeting and mylar that they had. And we started making masks in our basement like many did. But it was, again, we were a little ahead. We were about a week ahead of the rest of the country. So I think we were one of the first. The news found out about that and came in. And that's how I ended up on CNN was from making masks in the basement because we were desperate knowing that our docs were going to go in and take care of patients and our nurses were going to go in and take care of patients, whether they had a mask or not. And we, we needed them not to do that. We needed them to have protection. And it ended up turning into the 100 million mask campaign, which we turned over to the American Hospital Association. And now, by the way, they have exceeded 100 million masks in local manufacturing, which has been pretty amazing. So that was in the react phase. But then by summer, by May, actually, we said, we can't only treat COVID. We know that COVID's not the only problem that happens here. And, and we had seen about a 30% drop in heart attacks and strokes. And we don't think COVID treats heart attacks and strokes. And so we knew that people were having them and they were afraid to come back in. So in the recover phase, we said, we've got to get people the treatment for not only heart attacks and strokes and cancer and arthritis and all the other things that are still ongoing. And so we started rapidly scaling up our ability to care for everybody else with COVID, not instead of COVID, which is what we were doing initially. And the best way we can measure it is volumes. And so we're almost back to parity with volumes at the moment. That's likely to change with this new surge, but which means that we're probably taking care of people's underlying health needs in addition to COVID right now. But the big thing I think it's critical is the third phase. So we have react, recover, third phase is renew. 
we really do think that pandemics often form tipping points. And that is, you know, we're going to be talking about the before COVID, during COVID, after COVID world. And what is the world that we want to live in after COVID? And how do we reimagine the healthcare system? We are not going back to having a telehealth-free infrastructure, right? So how is telehealth going to move knowledge, not people, in the future? How are we going to make sure we, we get care to where people are rather than requiring people to come where care is? So that's, that's going to be the future. We are not going back to the data-free way that we, we, we built healthcare up. So how do we make sure we're embedding the tools that big data allows for machine learning, artificial intelligence, predictive analytics into the future infrastructure? How do we ensure that we can create seamless care that crosses venues where knowledge moves with people so that they're not having to be their own project managers when they get a complex condition? And so that really is the work that we're structuring right now is in this very friable time when healthcare is unmoored from its foundations, what can we do to make sure that when it settles back down again, it settles into an ever better configuration? That's the first time I've heard that framework of react, recover, and renew. Honestly, when you first said renew, I was wondering if you know you were going to go into the, the physician or clinician burnout space, because I know some of your, I mean, your 120,000 caregivers have been nonstop. And now like it's like another rushed and maybe the worst one coming over the coming months. I'm sure that you all have plans and ways to to get more caregivers in the fight or renew them. I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on that, especially given that our audience are primarily comprised of current and future healthcare professionals. It's such an important point. I think our caregivers have just been feeling whipped. And by the way, we use the term caregivers for everybody that work at Providence because we we believe that our EVS workers, you know, the janitors, we are our IT workers who are working night and day to make sure that the EMR is up and running and we can stand up drive-through test centers, and that our you know, supply chain people that literally have driven across mountain ranges to make sure that that one facility doesn't run out of gowns, and so they take them from one to another in the middle of the night, <laughs> like like when things were really awful. So they're all caregivers and they've all been working nonstop in addition to the nurses and the doctors and the MAs and the respiratory therapists, right? Something that we did early on has gotten a huge uptake. Over 10% of our people have used the service is, sounds ridiculous, but it's been, it, again, in the React phase, particularly really important is we put a stressometer on our intranet site. So, and that's, you know, just the little happy faces level zero and really frowny faces level 10. And where are you on the stressometer? And then we have services that we offer to people depending on where they are. And it can be anything from as simple as, you know, here's some great reading material on how to manage stress. And here's a link to a mindfulness app to tell us spiritual health, which believe it or not, is our number one thing that people choose, that people have just had crisis of the spirit in this, to tell a behavioral health. We have a behavioral health concierge service that on demand, rather than giving you a phone number and saying, here you go, here's or a list of counselors, we offer people actually cognitive behavioral therapy on demand, to a caring for our caregivers, or no one cares alone, work where we have peer group support, all the way up through suicide hotlines. And so that kind of having an infrastructure to help the dealing with the stress in the moment piece has been essential. But now we're we're also working on how do we build resilience? So there's the concept of post-traumatic stress, which everybody knows about. 
but how do we turn that into post-traumatic growth? And so our entire team of, of caregiver support and mental health support has been working on what's the pathway to get to post-traumatic growth because it is, it's hard and, and it's going to get harder before it gets better. Two of the things in particular that you said that I really want to highlight. One is this concept of being anti-fragile. I mean, people have heard the term black swan. There's an author, Nicholas Nassim Taleb, who maybe you, you know or have read, who popularized that term too with his book. But he also has another book called Anti-Fragile, which basically makes the point that there are things that, you know, when they get a hit or they get dropped, they break. That's obviously fragile. Things that when they get dropped, they don't break. That's resilience. And then things that when they get hit, they become stronger. And that's anti-fragile. And the way you've described kind of how Providence has adapted is is definitely sounds a bit like anti-fragility. Yeah. I hadn't used the term, but but the metaphor that I've been using is is it's like metal. You know, the more you pound it, the more you bend it, the more you hit it, the more you heat it, the stronger it gets. So that's great. Yeah, I mean, it's exactly the the right the same concept. And the second is uh, you know very similar to what JFK did. There's that famous story of how when he went touring the Houston NASA facility, he asked the janitor there what what did the janitor do, and the janitor said, "I'm helping send a man to the moon." And so similar, you're one twenty thousand caregivers. It's totally exactly right, the right way to look at it. And I'm, I'm glad that you uh, you made that clear. I know we're coming up in time. So my, my last question for you, given you know, your leadership and clinical background as somebody who trained in healthcare, is what advice would you give to our audience of current and future healthcare professionals in terms of meeting the moment of COVID and beyond? So there's a couple things. If you think really deeply about what do you want to accomplish, like I, I said earlier, my personal mission is to make great health and great care affordable and available for all, right? But it took me a while to come up with that. But if you know where you want to go, there's a thousand paths to get there. And so what can you do to continuously think about how do I get closer to that? Because it might feel sideways from what you're doing today right? Like, why would I read about anthropology and quarks? <laughs> but I don't know, because because how is that going to influence my future? And so, so by thinking about the end game and thinking about the myriad paths you have to get there, I think it opens up possibilities. So I mentor a lot of younger people, and I definitely advocate for continuing to be curious, continuing to learn, and continuing to think about the myriad ways you can accomplish your goals. I think that's wonderful advice and very consistent with some of the people we've had on this podcast, including the person who runs the AAMC, who was a philosophy major before he became a physician. So with that, Dr. Compton Phillips, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. I really appreciate you having me. It was a pleasure. And with that, I'm Shiv Glani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise line since we're all in this together. Take care. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.